Okay. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to uh, our special public affairs presentation. It's called America's Wars, the Way Forward in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq. Um, this afternoon's event, I should say, is co-sponsored by the Mershon Center for International Security Studies, uh, the Institute for Collaborative Research and Public Humanities, and the Wexner Center for the Arts. It's part of the OSU's Humanities Institute series called Conversations in the Humanities. I'm Fred Anderley. I'm an associate at the Humanities Institute, and I'll be your moderator today. We'll be talking about issues surrounding the United States' increased military commitment in Afghanistan, our military activity in Pakistan, and our planned withdrawal of combat troops from Iraq. We're going to explore possible military, economic, cultural and diplomatic strategies as the Obama administration seeks to wind down the U.S. commitment in Iraq, achieve success in Afghanistan, and ensure the security of Pakistan. I'll, have, I'll introduce our panel in just a moment. We'll have a conversation with the panel to begin, then later we'll open our microphones for your questions, and uh, we have microphones off in the side aisles. If you can't reach a microphone for some reason, just raise your hand and I'll call on you and, and have you shout out. And uh, that will be after some minutes of conversation here. Of course, as always, when uh, you do come to the microphone, please ask a question. No speechifying. Uh, uh, we'd like a question for our panelists, and we thank you for that. Richard Herman is director of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies, a second on uh, you, uh, my right, your left, and he is social and behavioral sciences, distinguished professor of political science here at OSU. He concentrates on international relations, political psychology, American foreign policy, and the politics of the Middle East. Rick Herman, great to have you here you this afternoon. Sean Kay, professor of politics and government, right over here on the end here at Ohio Wesleyan University. He's chair of international studies at Ohio Wesleyan and Mershon Center Associate here at OSU. He specializes in international politics, international security, international organizations, and U.S. foreign and defense policy. Uh, Colonel Pete Mansour is the Raymond E. Mason Chair in Military History, right on the end here, uh, to your left, a joint appointment between the Mershon Center and the History Department. He's a combat veteran of the Iraq War with more than 26 years of military service. He served as Executive uh, Officer to General David Petraeus, who was then Commander of Multinational Forces in Iraq, and he's currently researching counterinsurgency operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. John Mueller, right next to me here, is the Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies at Mershon Center, Professor of Political Science. His research interests include international politics, foreign policy, public opinion, and terrorism. Alam Payend, uh, to uh, my left, your right, is uh, Director of the Middle East Studies Center here at OSU. Born and raised in Afghanistan, but goes back there frequently. He previously held government and academic positions in Kabul. He conducts field work and provides consultations in Afghanistan on a regular basis. Welcome to all of you. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Well, uh, t to begin here, uh, Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, says Pakistani Taliban were involved in that failed terrorist bombing in Times Square. He says they facilitated and they maybe financed the attack. And the New York Times reports that in Washington, a couple of questions are being raised. Uh, one is, uh, since there's Pakistani involvement, should we redouble our military uh, uh, efforts in Pakistan, more drone strikes, more training of troops there. We have military trainers in Pakistan. Uh, so should we redouble the efforts? Some members of the Obama administration say we should. But others have asked the question, have the stepped-up predator drone attacks in Pakistan made Americans less safe from a terrorist attack? These attacks, of course, uh, the predator drones you're familiar with, uh, they're aimed at Taliban and other militants in the Pakistan border area with Afghanistan. Are, they, are those attacks inspiring more terrorist attacks on America and making us less safe 
Uh, let's go to Rick Herman, the director of the Mershon Center, for the uh, first answer here. Well, the basic problem we face, both in Afghanistan and Afghanistan, I mean, both Afghanistan and Pakistan, is that the Taliban, which has a lot of Pashtun ethnic base, have the perception that we were allied with them and supported them uh, through much of the 1980s and then turned against them in the 1990s, and that what we're doing is essentially trying to push them out of control of the territory where they have the majority population. And they sought refuge uh, with their, their brethren in the uh, western districts of Pakistan. I think that President Obama, when he came into office, was of the view that President Bush had made a mistake by not focusing most of our energy on Afghanistan and with it Pakistan from the beginning, and he decided that this would be where he would escalate to differentiate himself partly from the previous administration. And that's what he's done. You know, we've sent more than 30,000 extra troops there. We've escalated the bombing. The droning, the drone attacks in Pakistan have increased uh, many-fold uh, this year. And as a response to that, we're getting two, two kinds of uh, resistance from within Pakistan. The Pakistan Taliban, as well as, in my view, uh, some parts of the, of the Pakistani military who never were that supportive of our attacks on the Afghan Taliban from the outset. And they still say that while they will help us against the Pakistan Taliban, they are not so keen to help us against the Afghan Taliban. And this young man, who apparently um, is alleged to have made this attack in um, Times Square, his father is a vice air marshal. Hmm. And that doesn't surprise me that much. Uh, much of the uh, Pakistani military leadership, particularly in the ISI, created the Taliban in Afghanistan and have supported it for years. And this has been one of the difficulties we've faced, that it was through the ISI and the Pakistani military that we fought the Soviet Union, and in doing that, the instrument of choice for them were uh, Pashtun Muslim uh, fundamentalists, as we see them now, and that's been their network for decades. So are we now uh, suddenly much more liable to, to terrorist attack? Should we think of it in that way? I don't think we're more liable. I think we've been, and, and later on in other questions, I'll make it more clear. I think we've been involved in the situation in the Middle East pretty much as it is now for about 25 years. I don't see a gigantic change. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's continued to escalate incrementally as we have continued to escalate our military involvement there. And, you know, when you push a stick in, you're going to get a push back. Mm -hmm. Colonel Pete Menser, we've had, uh, according to a study by the New America Foundation, 114 drone strikes in northwestern Pakistan between 2004 and 2010. They have killed somewhere. The figures are hard to come by, but they've said, but they, between 550 and 850 militants have been killed. Civilians killed between 280 and 360. That would be a 32% uh, civilian death rate. Now, other numbers place it higher and lower. The Pakistani government says 700 civilians. Uh, uh, one particular unnamed uh, American uh, intelligence official said only 20 civilians. Only 9% of Pakistanis approve the drone strikes in a recent poll. These drone strikes, do you think they're a wise policy? Do you, do you think they're a moral policy? Well, I'm not a big fan of the drone strikes, but uh, you have to sympathize with the administration because there's very few avenues open to this administration to actually strike at al-Qaeda, which is ensconced in uh, the federally administered tribal areas of, of Pakistan and, uh, and in Waziristan. So if you 
if you have a policy that al-Qaeda is a, is, a, is a threat to the United States and you want to strike al-Qaeda, one of the few ways to do it is with these drone strikes. The issue is that um, it could further enrage Pakistan uh, and the Pakistanis against the United States, although how much further it could push them when they're very highly and rapidly anti-American to begin with remains to be seen. Um, what's become increasingly clear, though, is that the uh, Pakistani government, while publicly decrying the strikes, I think privately is encouraging the administration to continue um, to use them. And my guess is that the Pakistani government has a certain amount of uh, say in who gets targeted. Uh, so if you can target the uh, Pakistani Taliban, that's, you know, that you've got the the, the go-ahead to, to do that. If you can target al-Qaeda, you probably have the go-ahead to do that. And then they're uh, probably more reticent to uh, open up the aperture too much wider, which is why the city of Quetta, which is the home of the Afghan Taliban, has been off-limits to our operations. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting uh, question, and, and there certainly are more players involved uh, than we have public access and public knowledge of. Pete, you may know uh, David Kilcullen. He's a former uh, counterinsurgency advisor to General Petraeus, and he says these drones are technology substituting for a strategy to quote him. He says every one of these dead non-combatants represents an alienated family, a new desire for revenge, and more recruits for a militant movement. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, it's it's the lack of a strategy in that to actually do something about the sanctuaries that the Taliban and al-Qaeda enjoy in Pakistan, the Pakistanis are going to have to step up and become part of the solution. Um, and slowly you can see that happening. They took actions against the Pakistani Taliban in the Swat Valley. Uh, they invaded southern Waziristan last year, and we'll see what happens this year if they, if they take any actions in northern Waziristan. But until the Pakistanis become a full partner, in uh, the operations against uh, the insurgent groups that have set up shop on their territory, then uh, the drone strikes will be uh, a technique substituting for a strategy. But we have very few alternatives. To encourage the Pakistanis to actually um, take action against the insurgent groups on their territory and the terrorist groups, uh, we're going to have to prove that we are going to be in the region for the long term and that they're going to have to deal with the United States as a strategic actor inside South Asia over the long haul. Uh, otherwise, they will, uh, they will continue to play this dual game of, uh, of overtly supporting us to a limited extent while privately continuing to uh, maintain their links to the Taliban, uh, which they view as, as their proxy force to, um, to control uh, the eastern part of Afghanistan uh, should the United States leave. You know, all these numbers and and, uh, discussions can get pretty impersonal, but the Los Angeles Times on May 2nd did a piece on the drone attacks in northwest Pakistan, and they they recreated one, and I'll I'll quote directly from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, The Khan family never heard it. They had been sleeping for an hour when a Hellfire missile pierced their mud hut, and on August night in 2008, black smoke and dust choked villages as they dug through the rubble. Four-year-old Zirak's legs were severed. His sister Maria, three years old, was badly scorched. Both were dead. When their cousin Irfan, 16 years old, saw them, 
He gently curled them into his arms, squeezed the rumpled bodies to his chest, lightly kissed their faces, and slid into a stupor. Um, ethically, um, if we thought about this morally, you know, you may be aware the other evening that uh, President Obama with the Washington Press Corps had joked about the uh, drone strikes. Uh, he said, look out, Jonas Brothers. Well, to quote him directly, um, he said his daughters, Sasha and Malia, were fans of the Jonas Brothers who attended the Washington Press Corps dinner. Quote the president, the Jonas Brothers are here. Sasha and Malia are huge fans, but boys don't get any ideas, said the president. I have two words for you, predator drones. You will never see it coming. Close quote. Um, how are we to think about the killing of children in warfare morally? I mean, what kind of moral framework can we identify that makes this uh, acceptable? We'd like to talk well, about I'll, that. I'll take that one on because those children were not deliberately targeted. The, the, the targeting is of, you know, based on the intelligence that we have, is of uh, insurgent and terrorist operatives. And occasionally you get the, the intel, occasionally the intelligence is wrong. But there is no doubt that these strikes have uh, deeply cut into the leadership of uh, some of the networks in, in Pakistan. Um, and, you know, you're talking about killing several hundred uh, terrorist and insurgent operatives, and yes, that you've killed some civilians as well. Uh, but there was another article today that I read which talked about the uh, leadership of the Pakistani Taliban now, and most of the leaders are in their 20s because all of the senior people have been killed. So, uh, you know, in defense of the administration, these strikes are having an impact on the terrorist networks in Pakistan, and I think what happened in Times Square is proof of that. They wouldn't come over here and try to target us, and, and really what it is was an attack to try to target the American will to continue these attacks over in Pakistan unless we were hurting them. Um, so, you know, I, I really kind of take offense that we're deliberately targeting women and children no, with no these one, strikes no because that's what, it, that's what it seems that you were saying. No, no one has suggested that we're deliberately targeting uh, women and children, but uh, if we know with predator drone strikes that some of those civilian casualties are inevitable, some moralists, some ethics uh, professors would say, look, the fact that we don't deliberately target them, if we know they're going to recur, is, is the fact that we don't deliberately do it a distinction without a difference. Really? So in the Gulf War, when we were targeting facilities in Baghdad that had military potential and we killed women and children, then we should not actually conduct any strikes against Baghdad? Some ethicians would hold that, yeah. Well, yep. I, I, would, I would strongly disagree. I mean, if we had those, uh, uh, those folks in charge of our policy in World War II, Hitler would still be in power. Anybody else like to comment on the, on the panel about that particular issue? I do not want to just uh, comment on the morality aspects of this. Uh, I will bring a different perspective uh, from within the region, from mm -hmm. inside Afghanistan. Uh, according to both uh, Afghan social scientists, the indigenous scholars, are the Afghans themselves. I go each year, and it's, my research is focused now on Zabul and Hilmand and Kandahar. Uh, I was traveling from Kabul to Kandahar last summer, and this was just at the time when about 120 civilians were killed in Kunduz, but the German general asked for the aerial support, and it came, and those were mostly innocent people. 
Then in the Farah, there were another 19 to, but 90 to 110, depending on whose statistics one looks at that. So they were all civilian villagers killed under the aerial bombardment. Uh, morality left aside, whether it's, a, it's true, the Taliban are really going to the villages and they are using uh, villagers as their shield. So there is very little left for uh, uh, for American and NATO forces. Uh, there is a, they have smaller numbers in the rural areas. So that has become one of the necessities. But in my research and also others, uh, they have we found uh, that if you will ask the Afghans that what are the one, two, three, or four major challenges, they will tell you that, well, first it is the, uh, the bad governance of Hamid Karzai's government. It's corruption, uh, injustice, and uh, ineffective. Uh, they could not provide security for the Afghan villagers. Neither could do the the invading or the occupying or the guest foreigners that who have come to this country, whatever, from what angle you look at that. And this, immediately, the second problem they will list is that the, 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 the death of the civilian uh, Afghans. Uh, just yesterday, 10 civilians were killed. When I was in Kabul uh, last year for a month or so, I countered that when I was there, about 230 civilians were killed. Uh, this civilian deaths uh, are eroding the support for Hamid Karzai's government, and also it's eroding the support uh, for the coalition forces, the NATO and American forces. That's a, that's a practical uh, result of this, is that it's eroding the support, which at the beginning Afghans were very happy uh, when, when the coalition forces went and Taliban and Al-Qaeda were driven out of the, of the power. You know. But after eight and a half years, that, that's what they, after eight and a half years, still people in the villages are not secure. And villagers are both, they are the victims of the Taliban on the one side, and they are the victim, victims of the, of, of the military and the bombardment. So I think that it's, uh, in many ways, I will, I will leave the morality side aside, but I think it's a, from a practical point of view, uh, it, is, it, it has proven to be counterproductive for uh, the, the, the civilian deaths. Last year, the statistics are that over 3,000 Afghans have been killed, civilians, um, um, in, in different provinces of Afghanistan. We, we should say that a United Nations report released in February said that of the civilians uh, killed and injured in 2009, 67% were at the hands of insurgents, uh, 25% at the hands of uh, pro-government forces, meaning, you know, NATO forces, our forces, uh, Afghan police and, and military, and about 8% caught in, in the crossfire, so we should, we should make that statistic. Um, Sean Kane, let me ask you. Well, let me go first to, well, to John Mueller here. Uh, is, is this, um, John, uh, again, Professor of Political Science, uh, Woody Hayes, Chair of National Security Studies here at Mershon and OSU. John, is this a war in Afghanistan or war in Afghanistan, Pakistan? Would you say it's a war of necessity? And if so, why? Or not? No, it's, uh, it's um, well, there's a, a political scientist by the name of Warren Schilling once wrote in 1964, uh, at the summit of foreign policy, always find, one always finds simplicity and spook. And uh, the chief issue I think we should be discussing is why are we in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq anyway? Uh, and I think it mostly has to do with simplicity and spook. There is no effective threat, it seems to me. 
if I can take you back to 2003, the argument of going in uh, to Iraq was a total fantasy uh, that if Saddam Hussein was able to get nuclear weapons or some sort of weapons of mass destruction or the occasional chemical bomb, he would somehow be able to dominate the Middle East uh, with his pathetic army, which he so distrusted he wouldn't allow them in Baghdad with heavy equipment for fear they'd be used to overthrow him. Uh, he was also very wary about even issuing them bullets and somehow he's going to dominate the Middle East. Uh, we have now moved into, Af- into, Af- into Iraq. We've gotten rid of Saddam Hussein, which is a distinct improvement in some respects, uh, spent two or three trillion dollars on it and resulted in a war which has killed over 100,000 people. Um, in the case of the uh, Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan, particularly Afghanistan, uh, the sole reason, the sole reason we're there, according to Richard Holbrook, who is the head of the, who is the sort of uh, diplomatic representative for, for that general area, uh, is to stop al-Qaeda from repeating what they did on 9-11. Uh, that is to say, if the Taliban goes back and takes over in Afghanistan, what's going to happen is they're going to invite al-Qaeda to come back and they're going to somehow establish training camps, presumably ones are a little bit more effective than the bonehead who tried to do the bombing in, um, at Times Square uh, uh, to, to cause havoc throughout the world. Uh, al-Qaeda basically was destroyed after 9-11. Uh, it, has been, it has done basically nothing except issue videos of uh, al-Qaeda Central, at any rate, uh, since 9-11. Uh, the total number of people killed out throughout the war, world outside of war zones by al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda types, al-Qaeda wannabes, al-Qaeda maybes, uh, comes to maybe a few hundred a year. Uh, roughly the same number has died drowning in bathtubs in the United States over the same period of time. Um, the, uh, uh, the main reason for this, I think, is the uh, a strong opposition to al-Qaeda and, and also to 9-11, Uh, by the Muslim world, which has been cracking down uh, uh, pretty ruthlessly from everywhere from Morocco to Indonesia. Uh, So the result is basically al-Qaeda scarcely exists. Uh, He could apparently still do some damage. The damage would be extremely minor um, uh, overall, um, and uh, uh, it does not present anything resembling a threat. Uh, So far, the Obama administration has toned down the rhetoric some. It's no longer except occasionally saying that al-Qaeda presents an existential threat to the United States, though one of its main advisors does, Bruce Reidel, uh, uh, argues that somehow that the al-Qaeda is so powerful that it could destroy the total existence of the United States, which is really impressive. Um, uh, so some people they'll still do say that, but Obama has at least toned it down. But he's basically uh, 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 harped on this other uh, notion. Uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban never got along very well. Uh, Al-Qaeda just showed up in Afghanistan in, 1960, in 1996. It was granted hospitality. Uh, the, the, according to some reports, they were on the verge of giving up Osama bin Laden because he'd broken his hospitality agreement in 1998. But then the United States bombed after uh, Al-Qaeda bombed some embassies in, in Africa uh, and pushed the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda into uh, the, each other's arms. The best evidence is a new report just come out of the Counterterrorism Center in uh, West Point is that even after that, the Taliban and the al-Qaeda didn't get along very well. Uh, and then, of course, the al-Qaeda was ultimately the result of the downfall of the uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, they've been making noises repeatedly about how they're just a national organization. They don't have global reach, though, of course, conceivably they're lying or will change their mind later. Uh, but basically, the idea that al-Qaeda needs a base, it already has something resembling a base, uh, needs a base in Afghanistan uh, in order to do bad things, and the only reason there have been bad things is because uh, al-Qaeda doesn't have a base, I think is, is as 
um, as um, uh, filled with simplicity and spook, as was the notion that Saddam Hussein was somehow going to dominate the Middle East with its pathetic uh, army, uh, which, of course, collapsed immediately as soon as the Americans showed up in 2003, um, uh, uh, if, if Saddam were able to get the occasional uh, uh, chemical weapon. So, John, from your point of view, we have no national security reason to uh, continue uh, fighting in Afghanistan, Pakistan? Yes, that's right. None. Yeah, we have a humanitarian, possibly. Yeah. Um, you can make a humanitarian argument for that, but that and $2 will get you right on the subway in the United States. Let me add, let me make the, 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 how much it is currently. Sure. Let me make a humanitarian argument. I mean, some people say, look, if we were suddenly to leave Afghanistan, Pakistan, and, and they include Iraq, uh, that there would be a terrible bloodbath, that the Taliban would take over in Afghanistan, and that many more people would wind up dying, and that we've incurred a moral obligation to stay there to help secure uh, the Afghanistan population up to a certain point. Yeah, that's a perfectly legitimate argument, assuming it's true. Um, it's, uh, they've been saying that about Iraq. Iraq does not seem to be, as the Americans are withdrawing or draw, drawing down, does not seem to be bursting into civil warfare, which people have been predicting. What's happening is that these, these the uh, terrorists are still blowing things up. They're just something yesterday. Uh, and, that, and the Iraqis seem to just basically go about their business. They're not launching civil wars against each other. In the case of the Afghanistan, the problem would be that a lot of people are opposing the Americans because they're Americans. They're a bunch of foreigners who have invaded their country. And so the question is, if the Americans leave, would the Afghans then basically get their act together? Uh, Karzai is, you know, wants to hold a meeting this summer um, uh, over that issue, uh, try to bring the Taliban in, whether that's likely to be successful is questionable. The Taliban says they won't talk until the Americans leave. Uh, it's not, it, it may well be that after the Americans leave, things could, could, could get even worse. Uh, so you can make, you can make a, a humanitarian argument that's based on a bunch of, you know, might, might be's. Uh, yesterday in Iraq, as, as John notes, 102 people were killed in uh, uh, 11 attacks around the country. Uh, over 300 were wounded. And um, the former premier of Iraq, who is one of the candidates here in, in the current, uh, uh, well, election has been held, and they're trying to form a government, Ayat Alawi said that uh, because the government isn't being formed expeditiously, we, uh, Iraq is at risk of uh, sectarian warfare. Uh, th that would be another argument for us to uh, stay in Iraq and certainly not. Assuming we, can, assuming we can keep that from happening. I don't think it's happening. Uh, they, that's what they, you know, there was this sectarian warfare in 2006, 2007 and so forth, uh, and they're not rising to the provocation. The contempt in Iraq for al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda types is universal. I mean, literally. They've done polls, and 100% of the people say they're opposed to al-Qaeda types, uh, partly because of their, their incredibly counterproductive violence. Sean Kay, uh, Ohio Western University and Mershon Center Associate, let me, let me ask you the same, same question. Is this a war of necessity? Is there a reason for American troops to be in Afghanistan Pakistan? I think at this point, no. Uh, it is a war of choice, and it's a mistaken conflict. Um, I think uh, that wasn't always my view. We, we talked about this on your show for many years. I do think it was a winnable war. I think uh, in 2006 we had a window then where we had a chance for a good counterinsurgency campaign against the Taliban. I think we missed that window of opportunity. I worked as an advisor to the team that um, – that advisor, I was an advisor uh, to the group that had gave advice to President Candidate Obama on these issues. I think he had the right plan then, but I think he made a major mistake last fall uh, in uh, doubling down on a new <clears throat> counterinsurgency plan in southern Afghanistan. Um, and uh, what I find fascinating about the discussion um, is that we're talking about a war on the Taliban, 
um, when it was al-Qaeda that attacked us on 9-11, and the Taliban certainly were a host, and we, we, we dealt with that, I think, in the right way in 2001. Uh, but now we have done two things that I think are very uh, dangerous to our security, actually. I think by putting combat forces in southern Afghanistan at this stage, given the depth of uh, embeddedness that they have there, uh, that we are uh, <clears throat> conflating them with al-Qaeda. We're pushing the Taliban closer to al-Qaeda. We're taking a group that really wanted a piece of land in southern Afghanistan and, uh, and parts of Pakistan into global jihadists, uh, and I uh, think that is very dangerous and counterproductive to our security. I think there is a heavy burden on the administration now to uh, steal the American public for, the, for, for significant more terrorist attacks that could come as a result of our uh, embeddedness in the ground in southern Afghanistan. Uh, the second thing it does that I think is, um, <clears throat> is, is very dangerous um, is that it is overstretching our resources. We, we can't afford this war. It's, it's, so it's, it's not only a war of uh, choice, but it's a bad choice in that sense. And, and the, the, the unfortunate part of it is that we did have other options. But I'd like to say one other thing, uh, and, and I think that part of this, though, is, is that I think we failed in this country um, to have a very serious discussion as of yet about what is the nature of our of threats to our national security. Um, and uh, if you really look at Afghanistan at this point, it's very hard to make a case that even if you believe al-Qaeda is the ex existential threat, that this is the right place to be uh, fighting the war. Um, <clears throat> so finally, I think, though, that there's, there's a, a significant um, uh, broader picture here, which is that you know, the real threats to the United States today are things like our debt, uh, and we have our, our force posture overseas with uh, 400,000 troops uh, prepared for permanent or rotational overseas deployment, excluding Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it seems to me that it's time to start thinking seriously about how we, we realign ourselves or at, a, at a global level, start cutting back on that, uh, and that we, and one of the first places to start that uh, needs to be Afghanistan. Sean, are you proposing that all American troops stage an orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan or no? No. Um, actually, I ended up being right in the middle of the road on this. I opposed sending more combat operational forces, but I also opposed uh, 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 getting out of Afghanistan quickly. Uh, but what I recommended at a, at a broad level was um, that we should not have new combat forces in the South, uh, that we should um, instead fall back basically into the NATO mission in the more stable parts of Afghanistan and over a period of years begin a gradual drawdown with the primary uh, mission of U.S. forces there to be uh, Army and police training. And then at some point... Uh, begin to draw back because, as General Eikenberry warned last December, uh, the longer we're there, the longer Afghans are dependent on us and not able to stand up and take uh, responsibility for their own future, which would be my definition of success. And so our, our presence there becomes indeed very much part of the problem. But um, I think the real immediate danger is that we are now talking about the Taliban and not al-Qaeda as a global jihadist threat. And that didn't exist before. Uh, so, and so now it's, it does. It's, it's lessened our security here at home. Absolutely. The war in Afghanistan. I believe so, yes. Pete Mansour, let's get a country, a opposing view from you, perhaps. Uh, how do you feel? Has our presence in Afghanistan increased the possibilities of terrorist uh, threats here? Well, in the, in the short term, it has. The question is what happens in the longer term. And I just don't think that it would be our nation would be well served by withdrawing our forces from Afghanistan and letting the place collapse. I think it would destabilize South Asia. It would destabilize Pakistan. 
Um, and if Afghanistan is in the middle of nowhere and has no redeeming uh, uh, value to our national security, Pakistan certainly does, with a population of 172 million people on the border with the largest democracy in the world and probably a nation that will be a major strategic ally in the 21st century, India. And, um, and, and Pakistan also has 50 nuclear weapons. So all of that's up for grabs. And if we were to suddenly, uh, to precipitously withdraw and allow the Afghanistan to collapse, I think uh, it would become a cockpit for a lot of intrigue uh, um, based in Pakistan, India, uh, the, all the stands, Russia. And uh, I think it would create a lot of instability that would work uh, against us in the long run. The other thing it would do, though, is I think it would embolden terrorist groups because the, the narrative of al-Qaeda at that point would become something like this. Flock to the banner of, of jihad. We have defeated not one but two superpowers in the Hindu Kush. And if we just, um, you know, remain faithful to our, our goals, uh, we can beat these guys in the long run. And quite frankly, they would be, be right. Pete, help us recall here, um, President Obama has, is going to withdraw a certain number of troops uh, from Afghanistan by the summer of 2011, is that right? He has uh, stated that he will begin the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan in July of 2011, but he has not uh, said anything about the scale and scope of that withdrawal. So it could be one soldier a month and we could be there for 50 years, But uh, um, and this is sort of the metering that General Petraeus talks about. You know, if things are going well, maybe we'll be able to withdraw faster. If things aren't going so well, it'll be pretty slow withdrawal. When they rolled um, out the, I'm sorry, go ahead, Pete. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, when uh, President Obama said that at West Point, he put a psychological marker in the mind of the Afghan and Pakistan people that the United States really wasn't in it for the long haul. And so all this good that he did by adding more troops in terms of prosecuting uh, a counterinsurgency war in Afghanistan, I think he uh, he countered by saying, well, but we really don't mean it. Sean, you wanted to I, Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, the, uh, when, when they rolled it out, the, the briefings uh, were that um, that we would begin to scale down the, the surge troops, basically, in 2011. So the current troop force levels would probably be a constant. So we're really talking about a five- to ten-year, maybe, commitment over time if this plan is going well. And, and the other thing that worries me is our own center of gravity in this country, public support, the ability to finance this and fund it over time is really substantial. And, and one, one data point I want to give, give you on that is also the role of our allies is substantially declining here. By Right now, all, of all the allies that are committed in Afghanistan, only 16 percent of them are actually what, are, what the military calls fully committed 23% of them are caveated or stand-aside forces. They're just not involved in the fight. And 4,715 of the 16,515 fully committed Allied forces leave in 2011. And part of that is exactly because of what Pete was talking about, which is there's a psychology now that we're starting to leave, so why should these European allies double down and send even more troops at this point? So we're going to be increasingly alone, increasingly carrying that burden, um, and, uh, again, uh, for a very long time. Alan Payen, head of the Middle East Studies Center here, you frequently go back to Afghanistan, and, and you've talked with uh, President Hamid Karzai on a number of occasions there, and he's right now in Washington talking to, to the president. Uh, and the president has been rather critical of Mr. Karzai, but apparently they rolled out the red carpet for him today. What do you think they're, they're, they're talking about and what they want to accomplish? 
the, the news from inside Afghanistan is that because there will be a peace council, a peace jarga in Afghanistan with the Afghani Taliban, not Pakistani. First of all, when we talk here, we, we think the Taliban are a monolithic group. There are Afghan Taliban and there are Pakistani Taliban. Afghan Taliban could be divided into three groups. Uh, one is dedicated Al-Qaeda, kind of ideologically. It's very small. Then there are who are in the leadership, and they are under the Pakistani ISI's control in the, the Quetta Shura in Balochistan. And there are these other opportunists that who just want to fight and be financed. And then the Pakistani Taliban are, again, some of them are very closely linked with Al-Qaeda, Tariq Taliban in Pakistan. Others are the Pashtun nationalists that who do not like Punjabi domination. So there are other factors which usually does not come to the, to the surface to be. And then there are many others that who are opportunists who are just because not having jobs, somebody is paying them, whether it's a money coming from the Arab countries or it's from the drug money or whoever is financing that. When it comes to the, the new, this is Hamid Karzai, when he goes back from here, so there will be at the end of this month some sort of peace uh, initiatives with the Taliban. Some of the Taliban wanted to lay down their arms, uh, and that's one reason why the five of them were Mullah Biradar and Mullah Abdul Kabir and Mullah Abdul Salam and Mullah this and that. Five of them were arrested in Pakistan about almost a month ago. And those were the ones that who wanted to uh, somehow reconcile their differences. So that's the scheme right now going on. But my, what I'm concerned about most is that the Marja operation, which was just about started in February, Afghanistan has 34 provinces. In each one of these provinces have about 10 to 11 districts. It took 15,000 troops of American, one-third American troops, one-third NATO and other coalition forces, and one-third Afghan forces, altogether 15. And the statistics are that there were only about 2,500 armed Taliban. Now, this was in the city of Marja? Marja, yeah. Marja and Madali in the Hilmand, yeah. It took them almost about two months to clear only these four or five districts. If at this pace we go, it will be 10, 15 years, especially when we look at the American policy right now in Afghanistan, is clear, hold, develop, and transfer. It means that just like we cleared Marja, now we have to hold it so the Taliban cannot come back. Then we have to develop it. Then we will transfer it to the Afghan armed forces and the police, which will get to 200,000 armed forces and then 200,000 Can we do all that? I don't think so. I, I think neither there is. The United States has been in Afghanistan more than World War II, twice as, as many years. We are in the middle of the ninth year. And if, if, that, if this is the pace uh, we are going, I, I would agree with Hamid Karzai what he said, that maybe Americans will have to be here for whether the United States has the capabilities and is it sustainable for 20 more years or 10 more years. Uh, this is what I am... But again, uh, the, 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 I, I also agree with... Uh, with, uh, uh, with Peter Mansour that if they will abruptly abandon either Iraq or Afghanistan, there is a possibility of bloodbath. And Iraq is still not out of the, uh, of the shadows of that. Because the, in the last election, Ayad Alawi won two seats more than Nuri al-Maliki. 
but now they're disqualified. Sunnis are very much upset. Uh, and then the Kurds want also to not to secede, but create some, some kind of autonomous uh, Kurdistan in the north. So Iraq is still not out of the woods, I would say. It is, there is a possibility of the bloodbath, but up, up to now it is not. In the case of Afghanistan, uh, there is also, if abruptly, American forces and the coalition forces leave. There is, a possi- there is no other possibility right now. Taliban are going to come back at this stage. Is, uh, that, is that a terrible thing? I would say yes. Because it is. I do not know. If t- this peace jirga is going to s- probably determine, or at least it will be shown, whether the Taliban are going to accept some of the international norms and rules which apply to almost every... Uh, that, that women can go to school and that, that not closing the schools and not preventing people from flying kites and that sort of thing. Sure. I do not know if it's the same kind of Taliban. No one wants that. But if it is a sort of reform Taliban, that is something that some... I went to Kandahar in one of the provinces. I asked one of the villagers that, why do you guys support Taliban? And their argument was that the Karzai government is so corrupt. When there is a land dispute between two people, when it goes to the court, it will take them 10 years to, to really solve that problem. But when Taliban comes during the night and they just give the warning to that person that will look, this is someone's property, he has the deed, you are an aggressor, you are a bully. The next day that person abandons that. So that's that kind of swift justice. Maybe it's very dangerous. But when you look at it from the villagers' perspective, for them the first important thing is their security. Uh, if that security is damaged by either the aerial bombardment or by the Taliban, they do not like either one of those. Mm-hmm. So again, there's this uh, peace jirga or assembly scheduled for Kabul for May 29th, and uh, some attempt to maybe negotiate some kind of peace accord, maybe. Um, there was a survey by the International Council on Security and Development uh, of 400 uh, Afghan men from Marja, uh, Kandahar, and Lashkargah, and um, you know the operation of Marjab, where we wanted to clear out the, the, the Taliban, and 59% of those interviewed believe the Taliban will return to Marjah after the operation. 67% of these men did not support a strong NATO presence in their province, and 71% of these men say, said they wanted the NATO forces uh, to leave. Um, an interesting survey. Rick uh, Herman, I know it's difficult to take surveys uh, under these uh, warfare conditions, but and I don't know if that's a, a very reliable survey, but it doesn't sound like in that area, at least of Marja, that we're winning a lot of hearts and minds. Yeah, I want to go back to something that uh, you raised and John Mueller raised, and I think about simplicity. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan have some similarities, but one of the things that, um, well, I guess one thing similar about them is they're very very diverse ethnically. This is not a situation of us versus them in either one of these two cases. And people in my generation carry around a metaphor of Vietnam in their head that these are national liberation forces that hate Western imperialists and, we're, you know, it's all the same, an undifferentiated other over there. I think that's very much misleading in both the case of Iraq and Afghanistan. There's a lot of variety there. There are a lot of people there who want us there, and there are a lot of people who want us to get out. And that's what we've waded into here. One of the things you're mentioning, yeah, you go to Marjan, you go to Kandahar, too. It's probably overwhelming opposition to us being there. They're all pushed to them. And the Taliban has its strong support among the Pushtun. You go in the north, you talk to the Tajiks, who run most of the security forces in Afghanistan today, or you talk to Uzbeks, and you're going to hear something completely different. 
you know, we should be smart enough in our country to know. You go some places, you talk to some people, you hear one thing, you go someplace else, you talk to somebody else, you hear something very quite very different. They're not all the same. It's very much the same in Iraq. Iraq just had an election in March. And uh, three main parties, maybe I should want to make a point about our ability to change these fundamental diversities within them. We get pulled into it, and then we have, in my view, just the hubris to think we're going to change all this, and we're going to change it now, or we're going to change it tomorrow, or, or it's going to be up to us to fix it. Frankly, where I disagree with Pete is that if the Afghan Taliban think in the long run that they're going to be up against somebody, it's not going to be up against us. They're going to be up against other Afghans. And if those other Afghans aren't going to get strong enough to stand up to them, yeah, we're going to go home. I mean, it's just not credible to think America's going to stay in Afghanistan for the next 30 years. That's just not reasonable to think. And they know that. We know that. There's some just basic realities about this. But let me show you what, we, what I mean about how much we've been able to affect Iraq. Four, three years ago, we thought Iraq was sectarianly divided. It was descending into civil war because the election produced highly sectarian outcomes. So four years later, we were going to hope for a different kind of outcome. We had this election, as uh, was just referred to before, on, in, in early March. The election results still are not declared, taking even longer than you know runoffs in Florida and Ohio these days. But I want to just compare what happened, because this time we think – that somehow the outcome was better, and I have a hard time figuring out how. The alliances that ran in Iraq this time were the Prime Minister's Coalition, which had been part of the big Shia coalition before, the Shia groups he used to be allied with who split off because he demanded 50% of the seats of all the Shia if they won. So the other two parties, the Supreme Council of Shia and the uh, Muqtadar al-Sadar people, said they would run separately. And then there was a secular alliance led by Ayat Alawi, the first prime minister that we appointed when we had the provisional occupation force there. And that was our hope, that he would get a secular group going. It would include some Sunni. And shortly after the election, we were thrilled. You know, he got, he got more votes than anybody else. They got 91 seats, one of which has now been disqualified. So he's got 90 seats against Maliki, who's the prime minister, one of these Shia parties. He's got 89, one less. And last week... Uh, Maliki announced now he's going into full coalition with Muqtadar al-Sadar and the Supreme Council, giving them 159 seats out of the 325. So actually, the Shia bloc that we were so worried about before and that we presumably were weakening and creating a more sectarian government over the last three years has more support, has a larger majority. They have only four short of a complete majority on their own, 50, 49% of all the votes just in their own bloc. So much for, you know, the three years of the surge and the promotion of reconciliation across these groups. It's, it's just, I think we should all take some kind of caution here, Fred, about how much we're going to change people's public opinion on these things, how much we're going to change, because what's really driving these coalitional alliances are relationships among people in Afghanistan and Iraq who've known each other for a long time, who know we came in relatively recently, and we're going to go home at some point. They have memories of things we've done uh, in the past, particularly in Iraq, which we didn't support them in different kinds, in different cases. Same in Afghanistan. I'll just finish with one thing. You know, we're living with our own history here, and we have a long one in Afghanistan, and it leads them to wonder just how long we will stay. But I think the real strategic problem for one is one that we have trouble really facing up to. Because I agree with everything Pete said about the strengthening of them if they start to sense weakness. 
But sometimes I feel America's worked itself into a situation in parts of the Middle East, sort of like Mikhail Gorbachev faced in Eastern Europe when he became the head of the Soviet Union. We're, we're operating in a region of the world that we've decided is vitally important to us, that's populated by people who see us as imperial, who suck us into their own ethnic divisions, their own divisions amongst themselves, trying to use us to score, uh, settle scores amongst themselves, but who at the end of the day want us out of there for the most part. And how do we secure our interests in that situation? I mean, at the end of the day, for the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, it proved impossible. Because as soon as you relax control, not so much in Afghanistan and Iraq, but the places we haven't talked about yet that are actually really important to us, like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the Gulf Sheikdoms, which is the whole reason we went to Iraq and we stay fighting in this area. I mean, what are our interests here? Our interests are protecting ourselves against attack from terrorism, protecting oil and its flow to the world market, and protecting Israel. And those have been our interests for 20, 30 years. Everybody knows that. Everybody in the Middle East knows that. We can try to tell them it's something else. We can tell them it's democracy and it's humanitarian this and humanitarian that. None of them are buying that. You know why? It's not true. We know why we're there, and they know why we're there. And one of the problems we face is that to defend why we're there is a problem for us, because as soon as we start to relax control, we're going to get some real anti-American backlash against us, deserved or undeserved. It's just the reality of what we face. Well, can I add briefly? Yes, John. Yeah. If you can use the East European analogy, it really works uh, in the opposite direction. It seems to be one of the best things that ever happened to the Soviet Union slash Russia was getting out of East Europe. Well, I'm not saying we should stay. I'm just saying that's the <laughs> dilemma we face. Right. But Gorbachev wasn't <clears throat> able to relax and create democratic popular regimes in the region and stay. Can I, can I uh, sure, yeah, add one thing or actually counter one thing? You, you ask what did the surge produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the surge did was it made politics the operative method through which the Iraqis are going to solve their differences in the years ahead. In 2005, the Sunnis, by and large, did not vote. So the government that was elected was highly Shiite and Kurdish in nature. Now, it may be a Shiite government again, but there is a significant number of Sunni representatives in this new Council of Representatives because the Sunnis as a bloc did vote this time. And that is a significant accomplishment for the surge and for what happened between the Civil War of 2006 and the elections of 2010. So, you know, I, I think we did a lot of good there uh, by empowering politics again as the means through which Iraqis will settle their differences uh, over power and resources. Yeah, I don't want to dis- diminish what we've accomplished, but this election, at the time it came up in January, the Electoral Commission of Iraq disqualified 456 candidates, every one of which is either a Sunni or from one of the liberal secular Shia groups. And, and Chalabi was one of the guys yeah. in Not charge of that group. one person from one of the sectarian yeah. Sunni or Shia parties was disqualified. Yeah. No, I, I am not saying that sectarianism does not exist in Iraq. Um, and, and, and during the time of the election, more than 400 people were killed. So this is not exactly an election that we would, you know, hope for in Ohio or anything like that. That's true. But in 2006, <laughs> over 35,000 Iraqis died to the, to the violence. So it's, you know, it is a significant improvement, even though it's obviously not a Jeffersonian democracy. But the fact that the Sunnis are, are playing with 
within the, the representative system set up in Iraq now is a significant accomplishment. And what we need to do, United States policy needs to aim at convincing Maliki or whatever the next government is to give them a voice. Because if you shunt them off to the side the way that Maliki seems to be, you know, that's the road he's heading down, then um, it, it um, there's the danger of the civil war beginning again. And uh, that's a road we don't want to go down. Uh, Maliki, by the way, the reason he demanded a recount in Baghdad is he has not accepted this election as fair because he didn't win it. And this is typical third world. You know, he fell two seats short. He got one of them through the debathification commission. <laughs> I'll get another through the recount, and then I'll be the man in charge again. And uh, you can see it coming. Yeah, I think he's already accomplished that with this coalition. Yeah, well, pretty – yeah, yes and no. But, yeah. uh, Get your questions ready in just a minute. Uh, in fact, if you'd like to start heading down toward uh, these two microphone positions after I ask one more question here, we'll start taking your questions. Um, and, and please, again, keep any statements brief and get right to the question. That will help us out. Uh, Rick Herman, again, head of the Mershon Center uh, for International Security Studies here at OSU. Rick, you talked about our interests and our limitations. You know, that We have limited influence. Everybody knows we're going to leave at a certain point. But nonetheless, President Obama and succeeding presidents are going to have to make policy decisions about what we do with, with the troops there and, and what, you know, what, how we stay and in what capacity. So if you were in President Obama's position now in terms of Iraq and Afghanistan, what would you do with our troops? I think you can predict what I think he'll do. Uh, these are tough decisions. I think we'll declare victory and leave Iraq. I think uh, General Diaro wants to keep a brigade up in Kirkuk, and maybe there'll be four or five others that will be reassigned, and they'll be called. No, Pete will know the details, but they won't be called combat. They'll be called advisory, advisory brigades. Yeah, yeah right. uh, but they'll be fully armed, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so there'll probably be five or six of those hanging around for a while. And, but for the most part, we're already losing interest in Iraq. I, I, I wanted to say what I did about the elections because I think for the general public, we've just lost interest. We assume things are done in Iraq and we'll be out by December of 2011. Um, and I think that's what the president will do, and that's what we should do. I mean, we can stay in a non-mostly combat profile, continue to advise, continue to push where we can for non-sectarian fight. In Afghanistan, I don't know. I mean, I, I, as John knows, uh, I'm the one who makes the humanitarian argument to stay. I've made it pretty consistently, so I'll just stay with what I think. I think we did a lot to put Afghanistan where it is, and I think it would be a mistake for us just to leave now, partly because so many Afghans are counting on us to help them get a situation where they're not simply vulnerable to sort of social religious vigilantes. Rick, we, we've heard the argument made both about Iraq and, and Afghanistan that if we're to leave precipitously with our troops, there'd be a bloodbath. How do we know that's true? <clears throat> well, there was a bloodbath, as Pete said, in Iraq, you know, before the surge. I think I'm not nearly as sanguine as John that we won't see it again in Iraq. I, I hope we've done something with the surge besides just postpone uh, the inter sectarian uh, civil war. Afghanistan. It, oh. In Afghanistan, I, I, who knows, we saw a bloodbath in the 90s, so ferocious that people would have accepted anything so that they wouldn't be murdered and raped when they came out of their house. They did. They accepted the Taliban. They accepted the Taliban. So, I mean, the last time we have of some experience like that was pretty gruesome. Yeah. Alan Payette, you, of course, grew up in Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and 
and uh, you visit frequently, and you were a government official there at one point. Uh, bloodbath, if we were to stage an orderly withdrawal now, how do we know that that's true? That is one thing. It's very clear. Uh, Iraq has, if you, the census, I mean, it's not maybe accurate, but the estimates are that Iraqis, the, that 60% of the Iraqis are uh, Shia Arabs, about 20% of them are Sunni Arabs, then about another 18 or 19% are the Kurdish. So the Shiites hate Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda is a Sunni terrorist group, a very radical Sunni terrorist group. They, are, they belong to the Hanbali branch of the Sunni school, and then to the, within the Hanbali, then the Wahhabi or Salafi group. They consider the Shiites as, as kafirs, as infidels. So in Iraq, whether it is by thuggery or by democracy, the return of al-Qaeda is almost very, very, very difficult, very unlikely. But in the case of Afghanistan, majority of them are Hanafi Sunnis, and al-Qaeda was there. The training camps were there. I would consider that Afghanistan, al-Qaeda can return. When, when Afghanistan becomes a failed state again, just like Somalia and Yemen and others, the al-Qaeda's return is certain. If Americans will leave, or if Karzai, but if Americans and the coalition forces will leave, Karzai's government is going to collapse immediately. If Americans will leave from Iraq, there is immediately the, 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 the Iraqi government will not collapse. But if from Afghanistan, if the coalition forces are thinking that they are going to withdraw the next month, I think Karzai would be in a plane with them. Uh, with, 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 uh, that's, uh, th- 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 this, is, this is the certainty. We're swinging uh, from a lamp. To that. Sean Kay, anything to add? I, I think that the immediate thing that needs to stop is the counterinsurgency operations in the Pashtun areas of southern Afghanistan. I think that, to me, is the number one immediate problem because it's pushing the Taliban out of these places and into Pakistan where they can glo- go global with their jihadism. Uh, I think it, it was a right idea three years ago when we had the insurgency at a place where it could be beaten back, but it was a bad situation when President Obama came into office. There were a lot of people that wanted to go in and, and, and test this out, and, uh, and understandably so, but it was the wrong choice to make. And so the thing that needs to happen is, is to stop what we're doing in southern Afghanistan. But We're just about to attack Kandahar, right? Uh, so they say. That could be a feint. I don't know. I mean, I, sometimes they put these things out there to try to see how people will react, but that is the publicly announced plan, and um, that will be a, a real test, uh, a high-water mark for sure. Kandahar City is key to the entire southern region. My view is not, though, uh, that we should uh, quickly go a month out, away. I think we need a two- to five-year plan of a gradual withdrawal as I said before, fall back into the existing NATO operations, actually increase troop numbers, therefore, in the uh, northern and more stable parts where there are uh, Taliban. Um, I mean, that's where the, another place where they're starting to target now increasingly that they hadn't before. Um, and again, I don't think, and, and you, you keep, you, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, uh, it's not good, but we have no choice but to backstop the Karzai government there doing that. But I don't think he'd fall if we did that because we draw basically a line in the sand. And then, by the way, the Pashtuns and nationalists and Taliban in southern Afghanistan, 
we know where they are. There's no way we're going to go back to a pre-9-11 environment where they can build bases and operate freely. If we see them building bases, we're going to bomb them. But I'd much rather be bombing them in southern Afghanistan than in Pakistan with the drones that we started out talking about. So I think that's a why. Uh, see the difference. What's that? Why? 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 Yeah. Because uh, I think that you know, Pakistan is a is a sovereign country that you know we're not at war with. In southern Afghanistan, we can at least identify where they are. I think the biggest problem we'd have is getting good intelligence as to where to target. But I think that there's just no way we would go back to a pre-9/11 set of environment in southern Afghanistan, and far better to contain that there. Uh, to the extent possible over a, over a period of time. Um, but right now, the current forward leaning, I think, is, is really undermining our situation there and in the region. So my, my argument is lean the other way and use containment as a strategy uh, rather than counterinsurgency. Thank you. Did I answer? Yes, John Mueller, yeah. Um, the, uh, um, the question, I don't know, um, I mean, when, when Obama announced his troop uh, increase, he said uh, Afghanistan is in our vital national interest, which I think is nonsense, or they may strongly disagree with. And then two paragraphs later said, and we're getting out in two years. Um, sort of an interesting contradiction. I, uh, I basically, uh, I mean, the American troops can basically stay anywhere they want, as McCain correctly points out, as long as they're not being killed. So uh, no one pays any attention to the fact that there's still some in Iraq anymore than they pay attention to their American troops in South Korea. Uh, so if the situation get, gets down to the point where basically not, no matter how chaotic it is, just so Americans aren't being killed, I don't think people are going to pay very much attention. Uh, they have, as Rick says, they haven't been paying attention to Iraq. And just before coming here, I'm trying to keep up on public opinion and the war in Afghanistan. So I checked into it, and they're not even asking questions about Afghanistan because no one wants to publish it in the newspaper because no one cares about Afghanistan because it's not in the news, uh, and nothing nothing noticeable is happening. So I think basically, unless uh, the, the withdrawal from a political standpoint is really pretty easy, you simply get out, and if it descends into a bloodbath or a disaster, no one will pay any attention. That's what happened in Cambodia in 1975 when the United States withdrew from Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, the network spent about a total of a half hour on the whole genocide that took place in, Af in Cambodia between 1975 and 1978. Um, uh, people just focus elsewhere. There's a lot of public opinion questions about Lehman Brothers um, and things like that, and that's what people uh, will want to focus on. So unless there's some real terrorist act or something that comes out of that area directed at the United States, uh, I think uh, it's politically quite possible to uh, get out. And after, if it proves to be a debacle, Americans are really good at debacle. Uh, the, uh, the, United, the United States had total debacle in Vietnam and didn't even come up in the election the next year uh, between uh, Ford and uh, the guy who presided over the debacle and, and Carter. Uh, the United States uh, sent in troops uh, saying the civil war in, in Lebanon threatens the peace of the entire world. So Reagan and others sent in troops in 1982. A few of them were killed. 241 were killed by a terrorist bomb in, 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 in 1983. Uh, and he withdrew in 1984 and won re-election. Uh, uh, we sent troops also into Somalia. A few of them were killed. Clinton pulled them out in 1993. It didn't come up in the election in 1996. So Americans love debacle. They just forget about it completely and worry about other things, which they are much more interested in, like the shape of health care or, uh, uh, or, you know, what's happening with the, uh, with the stock market. John, there is a new Washington Post poll just out. A majority of Americans, 52%, say the war in Afghanistan is not worth the cost. And it breaks down this way. 56% of independents say the war in Afghanistan is not worth fighting. That's up 47% uh, uh, since December. Democrats, 66% say the Afghan war is not worth 
fighting, and half of them feel that way strongly. Republicans are solidly behind U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, with 69% saying the war is worth the cost. Uh, public opinion in, in the war, John, uh, can the president continue to fight this war with public opinion so split and divided? Uh, is that say, does he have to educate us or propagandize in a certain way, or is this, can you go ahead? But I think the problem is basically within the Democratic Party, as those poll numbers suggest. Uh, they, they, uh, Obama is basically brought in by the anti-war movement, the anti-Iraq war movement. Uh, there was a huge anti-war movement uh, during Iraq uh, that was, it was very successful because it worked quietly and intensely within the Democratic Party. Uh, the danger for Obama's standpoint is that enthusiasm is going to go away because there's a disillusion by his policy in Iraq and maybe in Afghanistan. Uh, and so consequently, the troops are simply not going to be there, and that's going to be to the benefit of the, of the Republican Party. So that's the thing I'd be concerned about if I were he, not so much uh, what, you know, what, what, what precisely happens on the ground in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly people are just disgusted with, I think, with both wars, and we'd like to not have to think about them, uh, and mostly they don't think about them. Your questions, come right up to the microphone, or if you can't get to the microphone, just raise your hand. Uh, uh, yes, and be very loud, and we'll hear you. Secretary Gates just announced the goal of cutting the Defense Department budget by about 15 percent. I think that was in the last day or two. And I'm wondering if he's successful in that, how that is going to affect our presence in either of these countries. Okay, cutting our Defense Department budget, Secretary Gates proposes by 15 percent. How will it affect these efforts? Yeah, I think it should be cut by 100 percent, then we couldn't get into these stupid wars. <laughs> <laughs> huh. We couldn't balance the budget either. <laughs> I, I could uh, actually, interestingly enough, when um, sec- I read that speech very carefully, he gave it at the Eisenhower Library out in Kansas. Uh, it's a very important speech to read, I think, not because of the specifics that he's talking about now, but the tone I think it sets that coming from Secretary Gates, I think he's actually talking a little bit more about what needs to come down the road or what will come down the road. America simply cannot afford uh, a $708 billion defense budget. Uh, It has to be cut. It has to be cut much more than he's talking about. The problem is a lot of those heavy costs are personnel costs, and that, you know, we don't want to undermine the people who volunteer to serve on our behalf, but there's also a lot of heavy equipment and, and so forth. But the real problem is, as I see it, is he says we need to cut the $15 billion in order to fund the current operations. And I think that turns it inside out. It's the operations, the presence overseas. I'm not saying we should get isolationists and all come home, but I don't think the United States is getting a lot of bang for the buck by having 400,000 troops ready for rapidly deployment or permanently deployed status for around the world, not including Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. And we have other partners in this world that should be carrying their load, like Europe, for example. Um, and they have problems. They have economic problems. But, if, but we're still in Europe 60 years after the Cold War, after World War II. And, and uh, you know, I've worked on NATO for over two decades. And uh, in my opinion, this is draining our resources. We need to step back and say to them, it's time for you to stand up and take care of your own responsibility. If we can't begin to disengage from Europe, how can we ever talk about Afghanistan or Iraq or places like that? So I'm trying to look at this in a bigger picture. Um, Corey Shockey, who advised John McCain during the campaign, argues we should cut about $30 billion from the defense budget. Um, But the reality of it is, is that uh, we spent in 19, and the last point I'll make on this, we spent in 1992 um, about 242 or $47 billion on defense. 
Today we're spending, now it changes with GNP and so forth, but today we're spending $708 billion, add to that $1 to $2 trillion on the war in Iraq, right, and Afghanistan. Is our influence today more or less in the world than it was in 1992? It's much less. And yet we're spending twice than the next 15 to 17 countries in the rest of the world on defense spending. It's, it's not advancing our national security relative to our position in the world. We need to be cutting it. It won't solve the deficit problem. It's absolutely right. It's not the, the thing that you can do to fix that. But it certainly ought to be one of the pieces of the pie uh, as we begin to look at what is really challenging our position in the world. We have a question at the microphone here. Several speakers have mentioned how uh, American drones uh, attacks have caused civilian casualties in Afghanistan and that uh, this has really embittered uh, much of the population. I wonder about how the population of Afghanistan feels about the terrorist attacks that are aimed at civilians uh, by who knows whom. The question is, how does the population of Afghanistan feel about the terrorist attacks aimed at the civilian population by whatever uh, uh, forces? Uh, um, they, I'm sure they deplore that. That. Let me first give a little bit of the statistics. In Afghanistan, one out of four children die before, I mean, just a few days after the birth. Then... The childhood disease kills others. Then the tribal warfares and hunger and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, children are important for almost all human and animal species. But when, when that sort of situation happens, the Soviet Union was using this, the butterfly bombs and others and others, to depopulate and scare the people. They did not succeed. Uh, these killing, whether it's by Taliban, are not popular in Afghanistan. When Taliban were in the government, only the Taliban regime was recognized only by three countries in the world, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Pakistan. And toward the end, after September the 11th, even in both United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia took their recognition. So it's not the popularity of the, of the Taliban. It is the unpopularity of the government. And, and we are in the ninth year of, of campaign in Afghanistan. The lives of the people have not changed. But in Kabul, there are developments in some other places, um, economic development, security for the people. So whether these children or women are, are killed by Taliban or by terrorists or by the drones or by the aerial bombardment, but somehow since the aerial bombardment is something, well, that the foreigners are here, uh, they, they, it's because the xenophobic mentality of Afghanistan throughout his history uh, that plays a, an important role of foreign troops being uh, using their technology in killing our children and women. Uh, but I think equally they hate the Taliban as much as they hate uh, the aerial bombardment. So both of them are extremely unpopular in Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah, if I could I just add that, uh, Mullah Omar has been stressing over the last year, he's the head of the Taliban in Afghanistan, about trying to avoid essentially collateral damage. He thinks it's very stupid as well as immoral and so forth, uh, and counterproductive. So he's been saying the same things he's been saying here. Uh, and if that's successful, they will be more controlled, and that's certainly what they're trying to do. Uh, that's different to what happened in Iraq, where basically the al-Qaeda type just got, kept going 
uh, you know, ballistic. They, you know, forced marriages, beheadings, and so forth, and uh, caused a lot of people to turn against them. So one hope would be in Afghanistan uh, that the Taliban discredits themselves even more, and therefore people turn against them. The Taliban seem to realize that's a problem and are trying to work on it. Uh, whether they're going to be successful on it, I don't know. One thing I wanted to say, I actually wanted to say it earlier when Fred read that very, very moving, vivid description of the drone killing and then just flipped out uh, some statistics that 65, 66 percent of all the killing is actually done by the insurgent groups, not by the drones. As someone who studies political psychology, I think we should all be aware of vivid, highly emotive stories like that capture our attention, have a much bigger impact on our sense of statistics. Mm-hmm. We tend to ignore base rates as a creature of decision-making. And so, Fred, you really, you really weight the scales really unfairly, just like any newspaper that puts a shocking picture of a blown-up body on the front page and then buries in the bottom someplace else a bunch of statistics that just numb people's brains. Well, because it, it is um, – they hate it. I mean, it's, they hate it just the same way anyone else would. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be – it struck me as odd that we're shocked – I don't mean to be hard-hearted here – that war involves some really ugly, terrible stuff. I know Americans should forget that. What we're involved in here is a war, and what our troops are being asked to do and what we're you know, getting inflicted upon us is shocking. And it's not just the cost there. I mean, it's the cost of war in general. All right, let's go to our next question in here. I've been uh, reading news reports recently about kind of a new strategy by the military in um, Afghanistan about some military commanders, maybe a little bit separate from, like, the American um, government and the American advising to Karzai, um, about giving more power to, like, local, Mm. not militias, they're trying to avoid, you know, the word militia, but, like, local tribal groups as kind of a, you know, like, we have neighborhood watch, well, that kind of thing against the Taliban. Um, and there's been some stories of it succeeding and others of it causing tensions and worried Karzai about, you know, the uprising of local militias. And I was just wondering um, if you all could make some comments on that, not only from the uh, perspective of, you know, the Arab psyche and, like, the tribal groups and how those work, and also from the military side um, as far as, like, whether or not it's working, whether or not it's helpful. Okay. Who would like to come? Um, there are two things. One is the, the civilian economic developmental projects. Uh, that's what now the coalition forces and the, the donor countries want to take this from only capital, which is Kabul. So everything is in Kabul. Ministries are there, universities are there, colleges are there, hospitals are there. So very little happens in the provinces and the countryside. So that's what they want to disperse that, at least decentralize it so that the local governors will be in the developmental project. They can really employ people. So that, that's one thing in the civilian. In the military side of that is that what Americans did in Iraq, the, the awakening councils are the sons of Iraq, which somehow keep these Iraqi Sunnis on payroll, $300 per month or whatever, and really, they did very successfully. They really cleared those places from Al-Qaeda in those Sunni, uh, the Sunni tribes did. This is what Americans wanted to do that in Afghanistan too, this, this, this awakening councils to, because the, what happened in Afghanistan? Afghanistan was one of the, probably the most heavily armed countries in the world. Afghanistan in Yemen. It's a two and a half weapons per person. I mean, that's, I grew up in a family of 
very urban people. In our family, we had 10 girls and, and four boys. So we had 11 guns and machine guns and all sorts of things. So that's, these were all, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, so they collected the weapons from the tribes and others. Then when the Mujahideen came, they also did, under the dictations of the ISI, to disarm the Afghan tribes. When the Taliban came, they did the same thing. So now the tribes have been with, disarmed and they cannot defend themselves against either Taliban or whatever. So they wanted to implement this policy of this awakening council. But finally, who, do you know who is the enemy of that? Hamid Karzai does not like this, this policy in Kandahar because his Alokozai, his Popalzai tribe, or his Karzai's clan, is in rivalry with the other Duranis of Kandahar. So they, they do not want this. So he does not want this in Kandahar, but he wants it in Wardak, in another province, which is not. The, so uh, in a way, this policy could work with some modification. Yeah, the, 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 the population mix and uh, is different than Iraq in Afghanistan. But so there are, there are, there are two, two sides to that, uh, that decentralize um, assistance, both military and, um, and civilian assistance to, to provinces and other places. All right, we have the third question here. Fred, you got two over here. And they're, they're next. Uh-huh. Step right up. My question is actually for uh, Dr. Mansour. It's about something that Dr. Payand has said um, in earlier speeches. He's talked about um, the importance for creating a stable government in Afghanistan. One of the key areas is political reconciliation with the Taliban. I wonder if you feel like that's possible, and if so, what is the government or military of the United States doing to facilitate that? Well, quite frankly, the Taliban, I don't think, are going to be willing to reconcile uh, in good faith as long as they think they're winning the war. So what, what is the United States doing to bring the re- Taliban into negotiations? We're trying to defeat them on the field of battle. And this is what, um, with all due respect to, to Sean Kay's thoughts that we shouldn't be in Kandahar, this is the reason we're there. Um, if you're not... Uh, winning in a counterinsurgency war, you're losing. There is no middle ground. There is no laying back and and defending your turf because then the other side will come after you. Um, And by going into the the Pashtun heartland and um, making it very difficult for the Taliban to um, survive in Marja and Kandahar and elsewhere, uh, the attempt here is to Um, give the Taliban some military reverses. And when they think that they no longer can win um, through force of arms, then they will be more willing to negotiate a political solution to the conflict, which I think we all agree is the the optimal outcome. Uh, But I don't see it happening as long as the Taliban think they're going to win. Why should they negotiate if they think they're going to get what they want? And just wait us out, and then, um, uh, as we, leave, if we, when we leave, as other folks have said, Karzai goes, you know, maybe on one of our C-17 airplanes. Who knows? And then they can walk into to Kabul, and they have the power that they had in the 1990s. And I mean, th- this is this is the dynamics of what's going on there. So that's what the United States is doing. It won't be us that negotiates with the Taliban. It's, that's going to be Karzai and the Afghan government that's going to have to do that. And, um, you know, he's made some some, uh, some outreach. Uh, it was so, sort of short-stopped by the Pakistanis who arrested his interlocutors because they didn't. They, but what their problem was with this thing is that they weren't at the table. 
and the Pakistanis want to be at the table when an agreement on Afghanistan is reached because they see Afghanistan as a big Indian plot to surround Pakistan. It sounds fanciful to us, but that's the way they see it. So anyway, that, does that fully answer your question or any, you have a follow-up? Anybody like to add anything to Pete? Uh, yeah, Sean, okay. I'll, I'll dive in on it a little bit. Um, if, 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 if I can agree with all that, um, what I would have to know is do we have adequate forces down there to actually do that? Do we have the civilian surge capabilities? Do we have the legitimate government in place to go in to a city like Kandahar? Um, I mean, these are core assumptions of General McChrystal's plan that I'm not persuaded are adequately in place and that they won't be in place for, for a long, long time. And, and so the timeline becomes a real problem, I think, in, in terms of operationalizing that. So, uh, I mean, I would defer to you on, on troop numbers and what happens on the ground, but, but I don't necessarily disagree with your point. I'm just not persuaded that we have the capacity or the will to actually go in and do it, and we haven't really gut-checked our own center of gravity and our own overall counterinsurgency capacity to actually do it. I do think several years ago, when the number of Taliban were much lower, we could have done it. But I'm just not persuaded that we've done this in an adequate way that it makes it actually worth doing. Alan Payne. Yes. Um, I agree with Dr. Mansoor that... Uh, if there is no pressure on Taliban, they will never come to the negotiating table. So there has to be this military pressure should be there. There is another component which have not been really done as effectively as possible. Afghanit, Afghan Taliban, uh, without the support of in, inside Pakistan, the whole Quetta Shura is in Balochistan, the, cap, the Quetta, the capital of Balochistan. And Pakistanis know the ISI whether it's the former director of the ISI, Hamid Gul, or the current one, or Ashfaq Kayani, they all know. They're keeping this Taliban as a strategic asset for them against India. So that's, if Pakistan, the pressure should be put on Pakistan too, really to cut their links and support for the There is a possibility. It, it could not be done only in Afghanistan. So because they go to the, these are the poorest borders, they just go and get the weapons there and come. And it's not only the Pakistani government inside Pakistan that which are supporting Afghan Taliban. It is the Jamaat-e-Islami of Pakistan, it is the jamaat al ulamai Pakistan, and it's also the Tariq Taliban in Pakistan. So as a matter of fact, the, the, the center of gravity has shifted from Afghanistan to Pakistan right now. And Pakistan is, I have been saying this for the past 20 years, that Pakistan is the most will become one of the most dangerous countries it is. So I think it could be done. Uh, pressure on Taliban, which is happening right now, and at the same time also somehow diplomatically get into some sort of consensus with the Pakistanis that they should also... Because Pakistanis are suffering from terrorism too. Terrorism only does not stay in Afghanistan. And Afghans have a proverb for this, that you cannot throw snakes to the neighbor's yard. It will come to your yard, too. I mean, that's, that, that, this is what exactly happening uh, in Pakistan uh, right now. Okay, one brief thing. Sure. Uh, the, the one thing we haven't talked about, basically, is the fighting capacity and the resilience of the Taliban, which we don't know what it is. But much of the stuff has been saying about we have to bash them so they'll come to the negotiating table is also said in Vietnam. 
Uh, and to a degree, it was partly true, and the, the, the hypothesis was perfectly valid. Uh, that if you hit them enough, then they'll, then they'll try to cut a deal. They eventually cut a deal and won the war, of course. But, um, the, uh, but in, in the case of Taliban, no one knows. Uh, they seem to be in it for the long haul, vastly longer haul than the United States. But maybe if they're hit enough, they will, uh, they will, will reach their breaking point and they'll try to cut a deal. Uh, maybe not. It's a big cipher out there. Uh, the, the Viet Cong and the, and the communists in Vietnam were capable of taking huge losses and then, re, then bouncing back to launch another offensive in a few years. And that may be the case here. Uh, we, uh, the Taliban obviously seems to be pretty resilient, but we'll have to see. We have two more questions uh, before we close. Yes. So we've mentioned Pakistan twice um, in the last few minutes, and it's at an unprecedented point of instability and I think there's a real fear that if Afghanistan completely implodes, the contagion can spread to Pakistan and really wreak havoc on what little regional stability there is. And India was mentioned twice. So my real question is, if there was really an imminent withdrawal of NATO or American forces or push, can't, push come to shove in the region, what would, what would the role of countries such as India or even China with you know, their, their domestic problems with the Uyghurs Will, what is the strategic role of those countries in terms of our diplomatic mission there, or how would they come in if our will in the region really started to cut loose? Okay. Very difficult to predict um, with a lot of confidence. It, it seems, as Pete said, and I think all of us have said in other forums, that for 30 years now nearly, the, the, the Pakistanis have been worried about an Indian dismemberment. In India did dismember Pakistan, East Pakistan, that you know is Bangladesh. And ever since then, uh, starting in the middle 70s, they've been promoting the Islamization of the Pashtun areas. And it was in the 80s that they helped us against the Soviets. In the 90s, the Taliban. There's a long-standing agenda among Pakistan to try to unite on the basis of Islam. After all, Pakistan was created as a country with no other raison d'etre except a country for Muslims, separate from the rest who would be in India. So, you know, it's not a new discovery that Pakistan's leadership cares about Islam. That is its, its only reason for existing. India has consistently been uh, concerned about that, has played diplomatic games in Afghanistan and probably still could. China has been a long-term ally of Pakistan, would probably come in not on the side of the Taliban but on the side of Pakistan. Uh, just simply uh, secure its interest. Maybe Alam has some other sense of here, but it seems to me that that uh, the likelihood of either of them intervening a lot is not high, unless Pakistan would lose control or unless you know full-scale civil war broke out in Afghanistan. But I'm not sure that would be the case. We, if what happened in the 90s is one country intervened, Pakistan through the Taliban and established control in Afghanistan, and neither India or China did anything, and it might be that way again. Our final question. Yes, my question is for Professor Mueller. Uh, you had indicated that if a bloodbath were to occur uh, with a withdrawal, that it would be given a little weight um, here domestically. Do you really think that's true, given the rise of human rights uh, since the post-Cold War environment? And what would the implications for NATO be? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it, I don't know saying I approve of, the, of, of it, but essentially the United States has survived a lot of bloodbaths, including the big ones in Vietnam. When the Vietnam fell apart, there was the, a bloodbath beyond anything you could imagine in Cambodia, which is part of that. 
uh, two million out of seven million people were murdered by the Khmer Rouge. Um, uh, the only person basically who said we ought to send troops to stop that because it's our fault in many respects was George McGovern. He was given about 30 seconds of airtime when he came out uh, on it. Um, there's bloodbaths going on. The United States, you know, st- stood by basically when famine was uh, was uh, racking North Korea, um, killing a million people. In fact, uh, the Clinton administration tried to exacerbate the famine in hope that uh, it would cause the North Korean regime to fall apart. Uh, so the, uh, the United States has stood by, of course, the ma- massive case in 1994 when it stood by and watched the genocide in, in Rwanda and basically tried to keep people from coming in. Uh, so our record hasn't been very good. On top of that, uh, during the 1990s, of course, there was massive um, uh, depredations because of the sanctions that were supported by the United States and Britain in particular against Iraq. The result of that is everybody knew at the time where hundreds of thousands of people were dying, particularly children under the age of five, uh, and it b- virtually never got discussed uh, in the United States or in Britain. Well, I'd like to thank everybody. Yes, Alan, would you like to add Yeah, uh, I think we should really be careful about comparing the situation in Afghanistan or Iraq with Vietnam. Uh, in Vietnam, when 500,000 American troops were there, uh, Vietnam was supported by North Vietnam, by China, by – these were the state sponsors, uh, supporters, uh, and almost indirectly by the Warsaw Pact. Taliban does not have the same sort of state except – in Pakistan. So that, that's one thing that Afghans ask me this question, that why does people say that's, a, that that's totally two different situations? Uh, and still they think that it's amazing that the coalition forces and Afghans and the whole world cannot do anything about this. Uh, so these are two different situations. Uh, I'll just come back to this, the India. India and Pakistan fought three wars with each other, from, if, you, if you consider the War of Independence and Pak- the Hindu-Muslim War after that Pakistan was created in 1947. Um, Right now, there is a Cold War going on between Pakistan and India in the region, and Afghanistan is one of those, that there there is this rivalry and competition between uh, India. So as long as this, the Kashmir problem is simmering there, and there is no sort of... So that's what I think that um, the, the United States is trying to to reduce that pressure from India on Pakistan in some ways that that Pakistan can really send some more troops than what right now they are doing, 100,000 Pakistani troops are fighting against the Pakistani Taliban and Al-Qaeda and others. So in Pakistan there are some some improvements have come uh, against Al-Qaeda and and Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, I should say, but nothing against the Afghan Taliban because Afghan Taliban are supportive of the Pakistani government. So I, I do not know, just a few days ago, one of the ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence, uh, former directors was kidnapped. And Mullah Umar from Quetta sent a jirgat to really, and he declared, he also have one of the, what do you call, they call it fatwas of Mullah Umar, that fighting against the Pakistani government is haram, it's illegal, Islamically. Fighting against Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, and Americans, are, this is a jihad. So for that reason, the Pakistani government does not hate Afghan Taliban as much as they hate their own Tariq Taliban in Pakistan. 
Well, Alan Payan is director of the Middle East Studies Center here at OSU. Uh, Rick Herman, director of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies. John Mueller, Woody Hayes, chair of National Security Studies here at OSU. Uh, Colonel Pete Mansour, Raymond E. Mason, chair of military history at Ohio State University. Uh, Sean Kay, a professor of politics and government at Ohio Wesleyan. And we'd like to thank our panel and thank all of you for coming to our presentation today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for making that point. Thank you. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here.